Blog Talk Radio. here for Truthy Toll Radio, and I'm going to get started with our lesson. Today it is, let me see, hold on, I don't know if I got it right, gotcha. Oh yeah, it's called, let's see, Be Filled with the Spirit, and let's see. I can find it, sorry about that. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna play a song first and then get into the lesson.
before I had Wakuska Pegofish, and I found the or the I didn't upload the file <laughs> for the lesson, but now it's up. And here we go. Let's call. Be filled with the Spirit. You may be baptized into the body. You may be indwelt by the Spirit. You may be sealed by the Spirit into the day of redemption. But you know something? You can live your Christian life in defeat if you don't know what it is to experience moment by moment the be being kept continuously filled by the Spirit of God. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. Every Christian needs to know the answer to this crucial question. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Does it happen just once? Or does it happen over and over? Or is there a sense in which you're constantly filled? Well, the goal of today's lesson is to remove any confusion you might have and let God's Word speak clearly on this important issue. John's current study is titled, Living in the Spirit. Now, turn in your Bible or open the Study Bible app to Ephesians chapter 5. Here is John MacArthur with today's lesson. Let's look together at Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. You follow in your Bible as I read. And be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The stark contrast between the drunken, orgiistic worship of the pagan systems and the spirit-filled beauty of the worship of the true God is in the mind of Paul. And he's saying, as a Christian, you've got to leave that stuff and you've got to come to this point, that you're filled with the Spirit. You say, well, what does it mean? Well, in the first place, it's the very opposite of the pagan kind of activity and the pagan ecstasy. But the verb means this. Let me give you the verb rendering in its literal sense. It means to be, it's a passive, be being kept filled with the Spirit. And the idea of be being kept is a constant, be being kept. You don't say, oh, I'm filled with the Spirit, that does it, I'm in for the rest of my life. Be being kept filled, moment by moment by moment by moment, see, be being kept continuously filled. It's passive. That is, something fills you. You don't fill yourself. You receive the action, and it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, who fills you. Present tense, be constantly in the present tense, being kept continuously filled by the Spirit of God. You may be baptized into the body. You may be indwelt by the Spirit. You may be sealed by the Spirit under the day of redemption. But you know something? You can live your Christian life in defeat if you don't, want it, don't know what it is to experience moment by moment the be being kept continuously filled by the Spirit of God. Experience. Now, when you think of filling, you think of a glass, you know, and you fill it. Or a box and you stick something in it. Or a container and you dump something in it. But that's not the idea. I'm going to give you three concepts to hang on to. The word plerao is used of, of a wind filling a sail and billowing the sail out and moving the ship along. You know, when we say that the, the sails are filled with wind, and that's in Paul's mind for, for a beginning thought, to be carried along, to be carried along, a beautiful thought, to have the, the, the thrust of your life and the energy of your life be the power of the Spirit of God. It's as if you are nothing but a stick in a creek. And have you ever watched a stick when you're a little boy, you drop a stick in a creek and then run down and watch it come down? You're carried along by the Spirit of God. You're blown along like a sailboat in the wind. That's one thought. 
There's a second one, and that's the idea of permeation. Plerao is used sometimes of something which permeates, and I think a good illustration of that is salt. Salt permeates. In fact, it permeates so well that if you put enough of it on something, it'll preserve it, won't it? But when you want to eat something and you put all that salt on it, it gives it flavor. It permeates the whole thing so that the whole thing is flavored. And plerao is used in that sense. There's the sense in which the Spirit of God wants to flavor your life so that you taste like the Spirit of God, so that when anybody gets next to you, the flavor of your life is that of God, so that being with you is like being with God, you see. So it's the idea of, of pressure to move you along, and it's the idea of perme permeation, so that, you know, when somebody gets around you, they think maybe they've been with Jesus. But the dominant thought here, in my mind, as compared with the gospel record particularly, the dominant use of plerao is to speak of control. That's kind of the idea. You, you've got the idea of moving along, you've got the idea of permeation, but the control idea is the key. Let me see if I can illustrate it to you. Whenever in the gospel record the writer wants to talk about somebody who, who just is dominated by an emotion, he will use the word plerao, which is used here. In other words, in, in John 16, 6, it says they were filled with sorrow. In other words, sorrow to such a degree that it can't be balanced off by happiness, and they're just totally sorrowful. Now, the same thing is true with how we live the Christian life. You know, this is the way most of us go. Here's self over here, and here's the Holy Spirit. We say a little bit for self, a little bit for the Holy Spirit, oh, a little bit for me, but all of a sudden, at some point in time, we yield to the Spirit of God and we're totally Self disappears, and we're filled with the Spirit. Everything is controlled by Him. All of our emotions, all of our acts of will, all of our thinking processes, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. See, That's the heart of the matter. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about living your life under the control of the Spirit of God. He's there, and if you don't live that way, you grieve Him on the one hand and you quench Him on the other hand. You grieve him. That's how he personally feels sorrowful. You quench him. That's how you restrict what he'd like to do. So you're really dealing with his person negatively and his purposes negatively. And by the way, unless you're filled with the Spirit of God, you're no use. Everything you try to crank out on your own is done in the flesh and is useless. It's at best stubble, not gold, silver, precious stones. So what the Scripture is saying here is that you need to be filled with the Spirit of God to be effective, to fulfill the worthy walk, to fulfill the love walk, light walk, wise walk, to do anything for God, to walk in wisdom. You must be filled with the Spirit of God. You must be permeated by His person. You must be borne along by His power, and you must be controlled by His presence. Now, let me show you something. You know, unless you're that way, you're useless to the Lord. I mean, He can't do a thing with you. You're, it's a waste of time. Functioning in the flesh reaps absolutely zero. Whenever the Lord wants a job done, He always gets somebody full of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, they needed some men for a special job. And so what were the qualifications? Acts 6, 5. And the saying pleased the multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose him because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And it says in 755, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Boy, I tell you, to be filled with the Spirit just takes you right out of this world, doesn't it? 
To be filled with the Spirit gives you a view of God. To be filled with the Spirit detaches you from the system. To be filled with the Spirit means I could care less what happens to me as long as He is glorified. He just looked up and saw the glory of God. It's a transcending thing. It's a transcending reality. You move right out of the world, right out of your circumstances, right out of your vicissitudes, right out of your trials to see God. Whenever God wants a man for a job, He wants a man full of the Spirit because it may wind up the man getting stoned. And if he isn't filled with the Spirit, he'll never be able to handle that. Later on in chapter 9, he needed a man. He needed a man named Saul who was a tough nut to crack, frankly. He was a persecutor of the church, but the Lord got a hold of him, and the Lord had one basic condition for him. In chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias went his way, entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, this is after his Damascus Road experience, even Jesus, the Lord, has appeared unto thee in the way that thou camest, and he sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul, before you begin your work, you've got to be filled with the Spirit or it'll be done in the flesh. Being filled with the Spirit, beloved, is just living one moment at a time under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's all. It's a yieldedness. It's the emptying of me so that He can fill. See? When God wants somebody to minister to His church, when God wants somebody to pioneer a missionary work, when God wants somebody to win people to Christ, He finds somebody, what? Filled with the Spirit. Somebody who is born along in the will of God by the pressure of the Spirit of God, permeated by the flavor of Jesus Himself, and somebody who is absolutely controlled by that power. That's the standard that God has set, people. You say, well, that's the meaning of filling, but what's the means? How do I get filled if it's, if it's commanded? Well, you know, it's amazing. I hear people praying for the filling of the Spirit. You don't have to pray for it. It's not a prayer request. It's a command. You don't say, Lord, oh, I want to be filled... He's up there saying, I want you to be filled, I want you to be filled, and you're saying, I want to be filled, I want to be filled. See? You know, if he gave you a command, then you have the resources, right? And the resources to empty yourself of yourself. It's a matter of the confession of sin. But let me give you a simple way to look at it. It involves the surrender of your will, your intellect, your body, your time, your talent, your treasure, everything to his control. It's the death of self. It's the slaying of your own self-will. It's the mortification of the members of your body. It's the death of you. When you die, He fills. When you empty yourself of yourself, He'll fill it up. He'll fill it up. Let me give you an illustration of it. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5 very quickly. You have in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, this statement, Be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? Here's what happens. You'll speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Verse 19. Verse 20, you'll be thankful. You'll give thanks always for all things. Verse 21, you will submit yourselves to each other. Verse 22, spirit-filled wives will submit to their husbands. Verse 25, spirit-filled husbands will love their wives. Chapter 6, verse 1, spirit-filled children will obey their parents. Chapter 6, verse 4, spirit-filled fathers will not provoke their children to wrath. 6.5, spirit-filled servants will be obedient, and 6.9, spirit-filled masters will treat their servants right. Now, do you notice that? Isn't it amazing? All this filling of the Spirit never produces anything ecstatic at all. It produces singing, saying thanks, submitting, and a whole lot of right human relationships. Nobody gets into some kind of ecstatic experience. What happens? Simple. All relationships become right. Your relationship with God is right because you sing and say thanks. Your relationship to other people is right because you submit, whether it's in a marriage or family or an employment situation. It's all very practical. It's all very clear. The filling of the Spirit affects all these relationships to God, to our families, 
to others. Now, let me show you something. Look at Colossians chapter 3. This is a parallel. Colossians 3, verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another. Here we go again, just exactly like Ephesians 5. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. All right, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks. Now we go through the same routine again. So it's condensed, but it's all here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, provoke not your children. Servants, obey your masters. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, masters, give your servants what is just and equal. Now, do you see that? The same sequence. You've got it all right there. You've got the singing, the saying thanks, the submissiveness, the wives, the husband, the children, the father, the servant, the master. Identical. Now, well, we know what produces this in Ephesians 5, the filling of the Spirit. What produces it here? Oh, it's different here. Look at verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you, what? Richly in all wisdom. Now, hang on to your seat, folks. Let me tell you something. Being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as letting what? The Word of Christ dwell dwell in you richly. Do you see? It's got to be the same because it produces the same results. People say, oh, the filling of the Spirit is mystical. No. The filling of the Spirit is taking the Word that Christ has given us and letting it dwell where? In your heart. You want to be Spirit-filled, don't go sit in a corner somewhere and plead God. If you want to be Spirit-filled, feed yourself the Word of Christ. And as you're fed and filled with the Word, and as it results in dwelling in you, pluseos, abundantly, richly, in fullness, you'll find yourself coming under its control. Closing illustration. Peter. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was. I tell this story in my little book on God's will. He wanted to be where Jesus was, always. I mean, I'm sure Jesus walked down the road and stopped, and Peter ran into the back of him. Peter trailed him everywhere. The Lord went up in a mountain. Peter went up in a mountain. The Lord said, will you go away? He says, where am I going to go? Peter was always around. And so, you know, I know why he was around. Because when he was near Jesus, three things stand out in the Bible. He did the miraculous, said the miraculous, and had miraculous courage. The first time you see Peter, he, he's in a boat in the sea, and boy, it's nervous time, right? The storm, and they're all alone, and they're shaky, and they're out in the middle of the sea in the Galilee. All of a sudden, they look off in the distance, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And then Peter thinks to himself, I'm here, he's there, that's no good. I've got to close the gap, see? And he's going to go be with Jesus. Now, he's been a fisherman all his life, lived on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, never walked on it yet. Every time he ever stepped into it, he went right to the bottom. He knows that. That's never been any different. And yet he jumps out of the boat and takes off across the water, gets out a little ways and says, <laughs> you know. You see, he was, he, was, he was unconscious of what he was doing because his compulsion to be with Jesus absolutely over, overrode everything. He just was going to be where Jesus was. And, of course, he met Jesus, and he, for a while he started to sink, and the Lord reached down and lifted him up, and they walked back to the boat. You know, and I can just imagine you know, him walking along with Jesus back to the boat, feeling pretty hot, you know. <laughs> Look at us, fellas, <laughs> you know, see. So anyway, Peter and Jesus are walking to the boat, and... And you know what? You have to admit that when, when Peter was near Jesus, he could do the miraculous. I mean, he couldn't walk on water, but he could when he was near Jesus. The next time we see him in our little analogy, he's gathered with the disciples. And, and Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Matthew 16. And they said, oh, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> and I'm sure he thought, so where did that come from? You see, Peter's mouth was available. A little while later in that chapter, Satan used it, remember? And Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. His mouth was available. 
And then God used it, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a shock. And Jesus looked at him and said, Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, my Father in heaven did. Well, no wonder he wanted to be where Jesus was. He could do the miraculous and say the miraculous. The third thing, he could have miraculous courage in the garden, you know. All the soldiers came in to catch Jesus, and Jesus said, Whom seek ye? And the whole Roman army fell over. Fell over like dominoes, flat on the ground. And Peter thought to himself, this is going to be easy. <laughs> I mean, one, and they all, they all fell over already. And so he's standing next to Jesus, and he's getting more and more irritated. And pretty soon he decides he's going to just lash out. So he takes a sword, and he starts with the first guy in line. He was going to go through the whole pile. There were maybe 500 of them from Fort Antonius. He just whacks off Malchus' ear, and he was going for his head, but Malchus ducked. No question in my mind about it. He wasn't just going, got your ear. You know, that wasn't the idea. <laughs> he was going for the whole deal. And he started with the first guy in line. He was going to work his way through the whole troop. We say, well, where, where did you get the courage, man? Where did you get the courage? Well, he knew that all he had to do was just look at Jesus, and Jesus would go like that again, and it would all fall over. So he didn't have anything to worry about. <laughs> See, he had the ability to do the miraculous, say the miraculous, have miraculous courage when he was near Jesus. No wonder that's where he wanted to be. No wonder when Jesus said, will you go away? He said, where would I ever go, Lord? And yet, you know what happens the next time we see him? He's separated from Jesus. Jesus is inside being try tried. He's outside washing his hands or warming his hands, rather. And the Bible says three times he did what? He denied him. Isn't that awful? You know, all it took for Peter was to get separated from Jesus, and he was a failure. Great principle in that, isn't it? You say he was a coward when Jesus was 100 feet away or so? Yeah. The next thing that happened, Jesus went to heaven. You say, oh, that's the end of Peter. He's a coward at 100 feet. What's he going to do now? No, you know what he does? He stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, You men of Judea and all ye Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. He goes on to preach about Jesus whom you've crucified as the Lord and Christ. And he preaches a fantastic masterpiece and God is using his mouth again. And it's going with divine inspiration and he gets all done. And they were pricked in their hearts and they cried out, what are we going to do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of them were. You know what you see him doing? Saying the miraculous again. He's opening his mouth and God's talking. The next time you see him, he and John are going over to the temple to worship, and there's a guy laying there who's been a beggar. And he looks at him and he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the guy jumps up and jam jumps around and dances and goes right on through the temple doing all that. He not only could say the miraculous, he could do the miraculous. And so they didn't like what he was doing, and they dragged him in before the Sanhedrin, and they said, Stop preaching! And he said to them, You tell me whether I ought to obey you or God. And he let him go, and he went right out and started a prayer meeting, and they prayed that God would give him more boldness, and they went out and preached all the more. Listen, it's amazing to me that when Peter was with Jesus, he could do the miraculous, say the miraculous, had miraculous courage. Later on, when Jesus was clear back in heaven, he could do the miraculous, say the miraculous, had miraculous courage. You say, what's the connection? Before he ever stood up on Pentecost, the Bible says in Acts 2-4, they were all filled with what? Holy Spirit. Now listen, here's the conclusion. Being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as living as if you're standing next to whom? Jesus Christ. It's not a mystical thing, people. It's filling myself with the Word of God so that the truth of Christ dominates my thinking. And then the Spirit of God, as I yield to the truth of Christ in me, will lead me to do and say and be what God wants me to do. You've been listening to John MacArthur here on Grace to You Weekend. His current study is called Living in the Spirit. 
This series, based on Ephesians 5, is designed to clear up a common point of confusion for many people. Namely, how do you live the Spirit-filled life, moment by moment, day by day? Now, John, following up on what you said today about being filled with the Spirit, what that entails, what it means, talk a little bit about what that looks like. What does it do to a person to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I just think you look like a Christian to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you're flopping on the ground. doesn't right. mean you, somebody knocked you over. doesn't mean you're babbling gibberish. If you're filled with the Spirit, you're literally being borne along by the Spirit. You're being moved in your daily life and experience by the will and uh, truth that the Spirit has revealed in Scripture. So I I think you look like a Christian. You love, you're humble, you're thankful, you're grateful. To live a Spirit-filled life is to just show all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Again, I've I've talked about this a lot, but you, if you're a real Christian, you ought to look like one. Mm. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you do. Because you're now, to borrow Paul's language from Galatians, you're walking in the Spirit, so the virtues that the Spirit of God deposits in us are made manifest. That, that's integrity. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, walk worthy of your calling. Hmm. So if you're walking in the Spirit, your life is matching up with your confession. You say you're a Christian, you say Jesus changed your life. You, you say old things have passed away, all things are new. Show me your life. Show me your life. And if you're walking in the Spirit, your life is going to be a testimony to the reality of what the Lord has done on the inside. So again, I think it's important to say in this world, where there's so much confusion about what it means to be Spirit-filled, as if it's some ecstatic experience or some almost out-of-body experience or some inexplicable, mysterious experience. It isn't that. To be filled with the Spirit means you behave in a way consistent with the will and revelation of the Spirit in Scripture, you live out your Christian testimony. Now, we have a booklet that answers this question. Yes, and I want to just remind our listeners to get a copy of it. Here's the good news. The title of the booklet, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? And it's free of charge. Call, write, send an email, ask for the free booklet, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? Yes, if you want to know what the Spirit-filled life looks like and how you can experience it, just contact us and request this free booklet, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? It's a quick read, but it's very helpful. Get in touch today. You can request this booklet online at our website, gty.org, or call us toll-free, 800-55-GRACE. Again, just go to our website, gty.org, or Call toll-free 800-55-GRACE. John's booklet, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? shows you how the Holy Spirit works in your life and how you can know if you're filled with the Spirit. It's also a great booklet to give to a discouraged believer, someone who's struggling to grow spiritually. Again, we'll send John's booklet, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? to anyone who wants a copy. All you have to do is go to our website, gty.org. Or call our toll-free number, 800-55-GRACE. The website, one more time, gty.org. 
Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson. Thanks for making this broadcast part of your day. Make sure you're here at the same time next week. John's going to show you how to focus on what's truly important for spiritual growth. He's starting a study titled Reaching for the Prize. It's another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend.
One race, the human race. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Global Apologetics and Evangelistic Ministry of Answers in Genesis. How many races are there? Some people will say there are many, but the Bible gives the correct answer. Genesis 1 tells us God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve. Genesis 3 says Eve was the mother of all the living. The New Testament emphasizes Adam was the first man. This means everyone is descended from Adam and Eve, so there's only one race, the human race. Evolutionists like Darwin taught that there were several races with Europeans being the most highly evolved race. But science didn't support their ideas. Eventually, research caught up with the Bible. So from a biblical and scientific perspective, there's only one race, and that is the human race. The Bible provides the foundation for our thinking. Discover more about shaping your thinking according to God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crashing our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch cash from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his bright in the might, and a dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the loss that he found, though, he was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a short hold on him, fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly prepared. Fortunate, everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't exist. Knowledge and properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. 
eminent It's awfully arrogant to reject them to your detriment Study the development from Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age It's relevant, crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments that center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent, exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death, and resurrection Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden And from the law, so the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause with hands raised Praising his name, singing glory to God <laughs> Where did Cain get his wife? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years and church compromise in six days. Yesterday we learned everyone is descended from Adam and Eve, so we're all one race. But this raises a question, where did Cain get his wife? Only three of Adam and Eve's sons are named in scripture, Cain, Abel and Seth. But Genesis mentions Cain had a wife. Now where'd she come from? Well, Genesis also tells us Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Since there was no one else for him to marry, Cain had to have married his sister. But isn't this incest? While the laws forbidding close intermarriage weren't handed down from God until much later at the time of Moses. Before that, it was common for close relatives to marry. After all, in the beginning, there wasn't anyone else around. Find answers to common questions about the Bible, like Cain's wife, when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped and encouraged with truth at AnswersRadio.com.
change the heart is hard. You've got to tell it. We've got the truth. We've got the truth. It's time to go. Where did the people groups come from? This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to visit our massive Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. This week we've learned we're all one race, descended from Adam and Eve. So where did all the people groups come from? Well, the Bible actually gives us the history to understand our differences. After the global flood, Noah and his family were told to multiply and fill the earth. And eventually, Noah's descendants decided they wanted to stay together and build the Tower of Babel. So God confused their language, forcing them to spread out and fill the earth. This event divided the human race into different language families. Now, each family took unique combinations of genetic information with them as they spread out. Soon, different people, groups, and cultures arose. Subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website, AnswersRadio.com. There's much more to learn at our faith-building website at AnswersRadio.com. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land what's up stand up stand up does anybody love the son of man trust jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land what's up surprise no surprise i'm back in your section with jesus his death burial and resurrection more power than gravity his knowledge and strategies confound the academy bow to his majesty Sin salary took up blame on Calvary. Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. That's prize I'm asked to Christ and rise in the afterlife. What did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I get a sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us sin. We got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man. 
listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proper vision is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shock condition. God the spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gonna celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the son of man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the son of man, trust, Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up. Is it really skin colour? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. We often separate people based on so-called skin colour, but do we really have different colours of skin like red and yellow, black and white? Actually, no we don't. To put it simply, skin colour is determined by a brownish pigment in your skin called melanin. Lots of melanin and you'll have a dark brown shade. A little bit of melanin and you'll have a light brown shade. We don't have different colors of skin. We have the same basic color, brown. We're just different shades of brown. This is because we're all one race, descended from Adam and Eve. God created this first couple with genetic information to produce a wide range of skin shades. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark and world-class creation museum when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find more answers to common questions at AnswersRadio.com. Bible book, Bible book, we're gonna learn all the books from the bottom to the top and do the Bible book, Bible book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. 
second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Makes me wanna sing to the bop, to the bop. Ark Attraction, the Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. Now, the Bible teaches all people are descended from Adam. We're all one race, the human race. And this means we all have the same ultimate problem, sin. You see, Adam's sin affected us all. Plus, we all sin and face the penalty of death. Our ultimate human problem is that we've sinned against our Creator. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, stepped into history as the last Adam. He lived a perfect life and took our sins upon himself when he died in our place on the cross. He then rose from the grave and offers eternal life to all who believe. Because we're all descendants of the first Adam, we can all receive salvation and the solution to our biggest problem from the last Adam, Jesus. Discover more about the life-changing message of the gospel at AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our life-size Noah's Ark when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. This is big question, short answers. How were Old Testament saints saved? Big 
question, how were Old Testament believers saved? Before we see what the Bible says, let me ask you, how are New Testament believers saved? By faith alone, and if the Bible is consistent, which it is, that should tell us Old Testament believers were also saved by faith alone. What do you know? That's exactly what the Bible says. Genesis 15, then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned to him, credited to him as righteous. How was Abraham saved? Not through circumcision. Circumcision happened after he was saved and credited as righteous. It wasn't through works. It wasn't through a sacrificial system. It was through faith alone. Now, that's what Habakkuk teaches. Chapter 2 and verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So now the question is, faith in what? Again, in whom does the New Testament believer place his trust? In the Jesus who came, the Old Testament believer simply put his faith into the Jesus to come. That's how they were saved, the same way we are saved. Here's a quote from a dead guy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said they believed God's word that he was one day going to provide a sacrifice, and in faith they held to that. It was their faith in Christ that saved them, exactly as it is faith in Christ that saves now. Couldn't be more clear. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints saved the same way. Jesus. The implications? Pretty big. Number one, God is unchanging. Therefore, his requirements for salvation are unchanging. Number two, Old Testament believers heard the gospel in fuzzy pictures. We have the crystal clear reality. And finally, number three, the Old Testament saints were saved by faith alone, but did not share the same benefits that we get. We get the Holy Spirit and a cleansed conscience. In other words, if you will, you and I are on the better side of the cross. Big question. How were Old Testament saints saved? Short answer, Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by faith alone. Oh, imagine my surprise that you're still here. Hey, if you'd like more wretched because... Apparently, you've got enough free time. Would you like this video? Subscribe to this channel, and we will give you wretched till it's coming out of your nose. That's from Wretched's uh, YouTube page, and that's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. And you'll find their website is wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. Richard.org, they have a TV show, which is where that clip gets taken from, and they have a radio show or podcast is also known. And so check those out. And I'm going to do three next is going to play a song.
This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine, this little light.
you had two weeks to live, a doctor said, Daisy, you got two weeks, I'm sorry, what would you do during those two weeks? Mm, live life to the fullest. How would you do that? Well, spend money, travel, do what's on my bucket list, so skydive, zip line. You should probably go skydiving, but I would probably go, like, buy, like, something materialistic that, you know, I've been waiting to buy, but if I knew I only had two weeks, I would just speed up that process. And what about you? I would probably travel, like, somewhere. So a lot of people die skydiving. The parachute gets twisted, and they hit the ground at 120 miles an hour. You don't want to speed up the two weeks. You're afraid of death? No. You ever think about your own death? Yes. Aren't you afraid of death? I mean, it's unknown. But the time will come when it's right, wouldn't it? Most people, if death comes to them, they say, oh, I don't want to die because they've got a will to live. Something in them says, oh, I don't want to die. They'll do anything. I remember an atheist didn't believe in God's existence, didn't care about dying, but when he got cancer, he let them cut away half his jaw to try and save his life. Because you'll do anything to hold on to that precious life. It's more precious than your eyes, your hearing. It's your life itself. Do you believe in God's existence? Yes. Do you think there's a heaven and a hell? Yes. Who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. So where are you going? Hopefully heaven. Are you afraid of dying? No. No. Do you think about it much? What about you? Um, sometimes, but not really. You're not afraid of dying. Everyone's afraid of dying. They don't know what's going to happen. So, Richard, what do you think happens after someone dies? I believe there's something out there. I just don't know. Do you believe in God's existence? I don't believe in God specifically, but I believe in a spirit. I just don't know what it is. I believe there's spirits, if that makes sense. What about you? Um, I don't know. I was thinking about, I was researching it recently, but I was thinking about reincarnation. I was thinking that maybe our souls goes into, like, another animal or being and stuff like that. You live different lives, feel different lives. So what were you in the last life? What was I in the last life? Um, I was probably, like, either, I was probably a cat. Cat? Yeah. Are you going to come back in the next life as a cockroach? No. Something. How do you know? Something bigger. I don't know. Something bigger and better. Really big rat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so who's in charge of giving out these bodies, and what do you have to do to merit a good body, like not a cockroach? Uh, I guess just be, like, nice, be who you are. Um, don't put bad energy out into the world. Be positive. Do you believe in God's existence? Um, to a certain extent, but I'm not really sure, as per se, because I've never seen it. But I feel like... There might be something out there, and there might not, but I'm not sure, and I, I want to look into it, see what happens. <laughs> What's well, the biggest issue you'll ever face? The biggest moment of your life will be your death. There's nothing bigger, you know, you know. So if God exists and there's a heaven and a hell, do you think you'll make it to heaven? Are you a good person? I think I'll make it to heaven, most likely. What about you, Richie? Are you a good person? Yeah. Okay, I'll put that to the test with a couple of questions. <laughs> How many lies have you told in your life? Uh, I can't tell you an exact number. What, a few? Yeah. Uh, many. Do you know everyone that's bad thinks they're good? Seriously. Oh, yeah, if you get a, a a bank robber and say, you're a good person, say, yeah, yeah, I'm a good person, and I, I love my mom and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, everybody has different, different goods and bads. What about the Ten Commandments? Are they a good standard? Yeah. You kept the Ten Commandments? I try to. 
How many lies have you told in your life? Yes, a lot. Told a lot? Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? Yes. Yes. So you're lying thieves? Um, uh, well, I didn't lie about stealing. Not from a story. Okay. Have you ever used God's name in vain? That's the third commandment. Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Jesus said, if you look with lust, you commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever done that? Yes. Yes. So, guys, I'm not judging you, but you've both just told me you're lying thieves, blasphemers, and adulterers at heart. That's four of the Ten Commandments. So if God judges you by the commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Guilty. Guilty? So, Daisy, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemer, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. That's four of the Ten Commandments we've looked at. If God judges you by those commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell. How does that concern you? Yeah. Hell. Hell. How does that concern you? Um, well, I mean, if that's true, yeah. Yes, yeah, if it's true. Because we think God is just like us. We think his standards are like ours, that he doesn't care about fibs and white lies. But the Bible says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, extremely detestable in his eyes, worthy of the death sentence. In fact, the Bible says... All liars will have their part in the lake of fire. It's how serious sin is to God. It demands the death sentence. But why is it everybody and everything dies? What do you think it causes? If you're a criminal in court, the judge will give you your wages for your crime, exactly what you deserve. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We earn death from God because we've violated this law by being lying thieves and blasphemers. So do you know what God did for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? Any idea? Not really. Well, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. <laughs> now, you probably know that, but you may not know this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus came and paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. He was paying the fine for the law that you and I broke. Just before he died, he called out, it is finished. In other words, the debt has been paid. If you're in court, even though you're guilty, if someone pays the fine, the judge can legally let you go. He can say... Daisy's guilty, she broke the law, but someone's paid a fine. She's out of here. God can dismiss your court case, forgive your sins, commute your death sentence, let you legally live forever, all because of that suffering death on that cross 2,000 years ago, and because of his resurrection. What you have to do in response is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. If you're on a plane and you didn't know what was going to happen to you if you jumped 10,000 feet, I'd say, look, you've got to face gravity and the consequences of violating it, and you're going to squish all over the ground. You're going to hit it 120 miles an hour. That's what happens to skydivers when their parachute gets twisted. And that's what would make you put on a parachute. You say, man, that's scary. I have to jump 10,000 feet. And when you pass through death, you have to face that moral law. And we've violated it, and that's why we need to put on Christ. That's why we need to trust in the Savior. Is this making sense to you? Yes. Because this is the most important thing you'll ever hear. You see, the biggest day of your life will be your death. There's nothing like it. It's the huge, it's the huge day. And so you want to know where you're going. Will you think about this? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. So the minute you do that, God will give you everlasting life. You have a promise from the God who cannot lie because he's without sin. Guys, you going to think about what we've talked about today? Yes, yeah, I'll think about it. Think seriously about it? Yes. 150,000 people die every 24 hours, and plenty of people die young, so this is deadly serious. This is something you really need to consider with the utmost sobriety. Do you have a Bible at home? Uh, none in my house, but my mom's house, yes. Is your mom a Christian? Yes. 
So you're here today because of her prayers. She's praying for your salvation, for sure, because she loves you. And so do I. I care about you guys, and I want to thank you for listening to me. I really appreciate it. And I'll just leave you the words of Jesus. He said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Your soul, your life, is the most precious possession you've got, and you don't want to lose it. You want it to be saved. Challenges secure costumes, and that's from W Waters on their YouTube page, the YouTube channel. Um, they also website livingwaters.com. That's L-I-V-I-N-G-W-A-T-E-R-S.co. Livingwaters.com. And something with Cantrilla. I'll play a song for you. Lord, I'm writing this to you. I really hope you hear my heart. When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start. Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning, way before the beginning. And this fallen world's distorted opinions. It was just the Holy Trinity, ruling from infinity. Blaze tremendously, loving one another endlessly. Billions, billions of years ago, outside of what we know, it's time. Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. Have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change. Never change. Forever you reign. You remain the same. You will never change. You will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change. Just the other day, how you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you said Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cost. We Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. Therefore, we don't value what is in the womb of a pregnant woman. 
Either one is the same. The big person, based on their needs, their desires, making a determination of what we want and who we're going to let live or not, both issues are the same, whether it's bald eagle or babies. It, it, it's about being a bully. It, it is about the big people making the decision. Imagine a society where human sacrifices were normal, not limited to the occasional sacrifice at a local temple, but on the commonplace level of parents and children at their house. Hey, Bob, what are you going to do today? Well, when I'm done mowing the lawn, I'm going to sacrifice one of my kids. Okay, so you're going to cut your grass and then kill one of your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Uh, I'm going to watch a game and then sacrifice one of my children. Busy weekend. That's, that's what we're talking about here. And what if the same society had abandoned all sexual restraint? We're getting there. Practicing sex between parents and children. We're getting there. Between siblings and between people and animals. Imagine a culture like that. You're observing it. You're, you're seeing it. And what if justice became virtually non-existent and evil and corruption were the rule? How, 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 how would you see that culture? Hmm? If it were in your power to stop that gratuitously evil society, question, would you do it? In other words, you're God. You have power to determine if a society continues existing or snuffing it out. And you see a culture that is gratuitously evil to the point of sacrificing their own children, killing them as they see fit, even as a sacrifice to appease you, making it even worse. Mm? Sexually, it's totally debauched, not just behind closed doors, but it's out in the front lawn. It's on the buses. It's in the streets. It's on the TV. It's everywhere. And it is rampant. There's little or no curbing of it. And there's no justice. You kill somebody, no problem. You molest somebody, no problem. Would you stop it? Or would you just let the evil and injustice and suffering spread like a disease, hmm? resulting in more evil? Here's another question. Is it possible that a perfectly good, all-powerful, and all-knowing God requires the destruction of a society if it becomes sufficiently evil? Hmm? Could God ever do such a thing? Can we ever imagine a society that is so debauched that we would say, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's right for God to wipe that out? Well, if you would consider doing it, and I think that you would, doesn't God have the right to do it? So now the question is, what was the situation? What was the status of the Canaanite culture? Hmm? 400 years before the destruction of the Canaanite society, God told Abraham that he could not have that land for another 400 years because the evil of the Canaanites had not yet reached what we'll call the tipping point. 400 years later, when horrific customs, parents offering their kids as human sacrifice, sexual depravity, complete moral breakdown, sex between parents and children, siblings, humans, animals, bestiality, were being practiced by the culture in general, God ordered then the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites. When people say, hmm, how could God wipe out an entire, that's just mean on his part. That's evil of God. No. No, it's not. That was the goodness of God and the patience of God. He waited 400 years and they never relented. 
And God said the same thing would happen to Israel when their, when their culture became gratuitously evil, which came to pass, by the way, in the Babylonian annihilation of Israel 700 years later, that God, after a while, says, I got enough. And that doesn't mean that God is cruel for wiping out a nation. It means that he's actually good because he hates evil that much. More from the life, why evil and injustice point to the existence of God. He's using an, a theologian here that is a little bit controversial, so I won't say his name. We'll just lift the material. Just as it would be absurd to complain about a high crime rate if there were no laws in existence, you shouldn't be complaining about evil in the world if, in fact, there's no standard of beauty and goodness to violate. Quote, My argument against God, wrote this theologian, was that the universe seems so cruel and, unjust, and unjust. How could evil exist and a good and loving God exist at the same time? But how, had I got, how, how did I receive this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line a crooked line or, or crooked, rather, unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, my argument against God collapsed. So this was an unbeliever who was warring against God, holding on to his atheism by saying, because evil exists, God can't. So if he realized, wait a second, evil can't exist unless God does, he would undermine his own argument, his own polemic against the existence of God. The argument, God can exist if evil exists, depends on saying that there really is something unjust, not that it doesn't please my fancy. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, my idea of justice, was full of sense. The next time somebody says to you, God was really cruel, he shouldn't have wiped out those Canaanites, you can remind them of the patience of God and unrestrained evil, and that it is a just God that puts an end to unbridled evil. When they say to you, there's too much evil in this world for God to exist, you can remind them that by simply acknowledging that there is evil, you're acknowledging that God must exist. Their argument against the existence of God is undermined by their argument against the existence of God. Back to this theologian. The moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them both by a standard and saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. Comparing them both with some real morality, admitting there is such a thing as real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to that real right than others. Moral systems, because we recognize some are better than others, tells us there must be a perfect moral system. If we recognize some behavior is closer to good than others, we are therefore acknowledging there is a perfect standard of goodness. That's why when somebody says to you, hey, I don't think God exists because evil exists, you can simply congratulate them for acknowledging God exists. And that is, it's an increasing challenge. I get that. Our world is so far away from God in their thinking right now. Their minds are so darkened. But if you can say to somebody, would you agree that there is absolute evil in the world and that no setting and no societal vote can make it not evil? Do, do, can we agree on that? And when they say yes, and they will ultimately have to, 
congratulate them for acknowledging the existence of God. How far have you taken them, however? You have not converted them. You have, you have simply demonstrated that there is, a, there is some sort of theistic system by using the transcendental argument for the existence of God. If there is morality, there is a moral law giver. Now the question becomes, who is it? That is when you can present the law and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the next time somebody brings up to you the objection, God doesn't exist because of evil, you can use their argument to demonstrate that God, not that God doesn't exist, but that he does exist, but don't stop there in your aha moment. Use the law to bring about the knowledge of sin against that God and then introduce them to the God who is the perfect standard of morality and who is the one who will punish people for not matching that standard and who is the one who has sent his son to die for us because we cannot meet that standard. Don't be afraid at the argument against the existence of God because of evil. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. Behold a world without wretches. Please, become a gospel partner. Okay, so wretched is evil actually proves God does exist. And what I got for you next is a song that says, with go fish and love like this.
that was done like this. My goldfish, you want to check them out, go to goldfishguys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S.com, goldfishguys.com. And that's all for the show. And i go out with Yancy and the Friends with the Via Billy. Bye for now. The Bee!